darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. First John chapter four, verses seven to 12. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God shared his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's do that one more time, shall we? Thanks be to God. Wonderful. Thanks, family, for that one. Hey, my name's Alex. I'm the pastor here at New Life Brisbane. It's my delight to shepherd us and learn from us and come alongside us to see how we might follow our King Jesus together. Before I jump in, two little announcements from me. Um, The first is um, a few weeks ago we started a process whereby we sought our fourth elder. We're looking for our second female elder, our fourth elder, and I just wanted to let you know we've had some nominations come through, really exciting. And on top of that, that tomorrow is the last day by which members can nominate people for eldership. I said this last week, I'll say it again this week, we have every belief and every confidence that we have our fourth elder here in this church and we're excited to see who that might be and how we can discern as a church uh, moving forward with that. Um, On top of that, I just wanted to let you know, for the last two months, on the first Monday of the month, I've been getting together in the crypt with some guys praying from 6.15 till 6.45. And if you're a male in this church and you've got nowhere to pray or you'd like to join us as we contend for our church, our lives, our families, our world, I just invite you. Uh, Men's prayer, 6.15 a.m. in the crypt behind me. Uh, Parking is free on Ann Street right up until 7 a.m. And so you come in 6.10, get a cuppa, jump in, we start praying from 6.15 till 6.45, and then we say goodbye, and each of us go about our day. So if you'd like to join us, a strong contingent of men have been praying so far, I would just invite you. If it's on your heart, please join us. It's a wonderful space. Last week, um, God did something really special in our service. Can I get like an amen for that? Amen. Amen. And I was just blown away. I just want to let you know, I had three categories. If you weren't here last week, this, this, I hope this will make sense just as we go along here, but I had three categories of people that I would invite to respond by standing. Uh, and the categories were this. One, those who eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit in our church. Two, those who feebly desire the gifts of the Spirit in our church. And then three, just the rest of us. And when I invited us to stand, inviting those who would consider themselves eagerly desiring of the gifts of God's spirit in our church, the whole church just got to their feet. I just want to remind you that that happened. And the question that sits before us now is how do we steward what God did 
is doing and will do. And what a coincidence that today is Pentecost Sunday. 2,000 years ago, when our Lord Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days appearing to his disciples. And then 10 days after he ascended to the heavens, he, um, his, his disciples gathered in the upper room and just prayed for 10 days straight. Longest prayer meeting ever, right? And on the 10th day, the Spirit came. And we call it the democratization of God's Spirit. What was particular in the Old Testament became ordinary in the New Testament. What was unusual in times gone by became usual and accessible and available to everyone. Why? God's spirit, all flesh, the last days, mission of God. It's exciting. So welcome to Pentecost Sunday. Can I get another amen? amen. Awesome. So good to be in church with each of us this afternoon. Um, I'm preaching on quite a profound topic this afternoon. It's the notion that God is love. And it's the last sermon in this series we've been walking through as a church And at the very start, we said the notion that God is light and God is love can sound like really fluffy topics, the kind of thing you'd put on a Christian mug that you buy from Koorong and makes you feel nice about yourself whenever you have your Earl Grey tea in the morning. But actually, these are some of the most robust, fundamental pillars of faith. The idea that God is light and God is love. It's profound and simple all at the same time because it wraps up so much of what the Christian story is. And so just to finish off this series, I want to start by praying and then we'll jump into it. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that ancient prayer this afternoon. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't want to play church. We don't want to be professional Christians. We want to encounter you and hear your voice. Thank you that you speak both to us by your spirit, but then through your word. And so God, as we come around your scripture this afternoon, would you speak to us in Jesus' name? And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. Awesome. Um, I don't know if you've had that experience in life where there's like a thing you love. It could be a place, a person, a beverage, a food item, and you love it. You Like you really love it. For me, it's coffee. And you meet someone and they don't love it. And I don't know what your first sort of response is when you meet someone, they're like, oh no, I don't drink coffee, you know? My response is, you haven't had the real thing, right? Does anyone know this experience? When there's something you love and you hold it really dear to your heart, it could be a person, a place, a thing, a food, a drink, and you meet someone and they're like, oh, I don't love that thing. And you're like, you haven't had a real coffee. You know what I'm saying? And they might be like, oh, coffee just tastes bitter. It's like, nah, you've had over-extracted brews before. Oh, coffee just tastes dark. No, it's been burnt and, and sort of, you know, the roaster didn't do a good job, that kind of thing. Um, you haven't had the real thing. You've had like a counterfeit. It can't be true that you don't like coffee. I love it so much, you haven't had the real thing. Or um, another one, and you're like, Alex, you eat a lot of food. Almond croissants, right? Um, show of hands. No, we won't do that, but... <laughs> Like you meet someone and you're like, you know, I'm like, oh man, I love almond croissants. I love that they're both crispy and gooey and soft, but all at the same time. And there's this beautiful cream in the center and it's like, is there egg in that? I don't know, but it's amazing. And you meet someone, they're like, nah, croissants don't do it for me. You're like, you've not had a real one, right? What is it for you? Why don't you turn to someone and just to a neighbor and share? What's the thing that you love that you've met someone and you're like, oh, they just don't, you know, what is it for you?
Awesome. I'll bring us back in now. <laughs> this is... Um, How do I stop this? We're done. <laughs> Wonderful. Lots of community. Wonderful vibe in the room this afternoon. That was wonderful. If you want to chat that much, awesome place. I gave you license in the service, but we also join at 3.30 p.m. every... This is just a cheeky way to plug. 3.30 p.m., tea and coffee, out on the lawn. Join us for fellowship. No. Um, but, you know, when you meet someone who doesn't like what you love... Your first response is, oh, it's a, you've not experienced the real thing. You've experienced the counterfeit or something that sort of loosely resembles what I love but isn't the real thing. And recently we've been journeying through John's first letter. And his whole goal is to make it such that people in this world wouldn't experience counterfeit Christians. I've quoted Gandhi before. Gandhi once said that he, he likes our Christ but he doesn't like Christians. Maybe you're in the room this afternoon, yourself a Christian, you've experienced hypocritical Christians, whether in a small group or in a friendship context or whatever, and there's this sense in which you can say, man, I, there's something about Christians that just seems off to me. I, I met this one one time, and you tell this story of pain and hurt and hypocriticism and self-righteousness, and it's got this stench about it. And here's, here's John's aim as he writes this letter. Let's not be counterfeits. Let's not be the kind of people because of which others look at us and think, oh man, I, I don't like Christians. Because John would say, no, you've, you've just not experienced the real thing. And that begs the question, well, what is the real thing? And the point of John's letter in talking about God as light in the first half and God as love in the second half is, is to give us a lens through which to look at God from which we examine our lives. Because God is light, we run away from darkness. Because God is love, we love one another. Because God is these things, we find ourselves responding in ways that actually integrate with the person and the being of God. It changes our lives. Because of which, we line up our embodied lives with him. John's goal is to encourage authentic Christians and to help us identify counterfeits. That's John's goal in his letter. Now, um, there's a commentary written by a guy named Robert Law many years ago uh, towards the back end of the 19th century. And when he was trying to summarize in the title of his commentary what John's first letter is about, he says it's about three tests. Three tests that we can use of ourselves as Christians to try and understand whether we are indeed authentic Christians. Now, before I tell you what those tests are, let me just preempt something. Whenever we talk about actually following after Jesus, what we're doing is we're not saying, do this so you'd work towards God loving you, or do this so that God might be gracious to you. We've actually got a different base than that, and I'll get to that in point two of my sermon later. But Robert Law's three tests were this. He says, for any Christian to be an authentic Christian, there needs to be three categories that they need to address in life. One is intellectual, two is moral, and the third is social. Intellectual, that when you're a Christian, there's actually things about the universe and about God and about life that you believe. Changes your thinking, intellectual. Moral, that when you come to know Jesus and God through Jesus Christ, there's actually an effect that it has on your life, the way you act within yourself, the way you pursue um, goodness and beauty and truth and justice in this world, it actually changes the way you live, moral. And then thirdly, social. It changes the way you relate to one another. 
that there's something in the midst of our toing and froing as a community of followers of Jesus that is different, beautiful, wonderful, and exciting to inhabit. Intellectual, moral, and social. And the test that John puts across our imagination this afternoon is a social one. Love one another. Love one another. This is the heart of John's letter. Every single chapter, maybe minus chapter one, basically says the way you love one another witnesses to God in the church that the relationships we have with one another actually tells a story about the kind of relationship God wants to have with humanity. That the way that we give for one another, are generous to one another, give time for one another, spend of our lives for one another, that, that is the heart of the impact of the message of the gospel. That the result of coming into relationship with God, being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ is this outward social interplay between us and each other, not just for the church, but actually with our relationship with the world. There should be this sense of love, love that permeates and impacts the whole. And I want to unpack this afternoon as we look at verses 7 to 12, the three arguments that John makes as he gives that command. The command is this, love one another, because, three points, of God's eternal nature, his historic action, and a present goal that God has. God's eternal nature, his historic action, and a present goal that he has. So number one, God's eternal nature. Let me read from verses seven. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who knows Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is love. Now just pause here for a second. This is one of the most simple and profound, beautiful and powerful ideas you will hear, not just in the Christian story, but in this universe. God is love. A few years ago when I was studying in the UK, I was studying at Wycliffe Hall, and after my time, a scholar came along by the name of N.T. Wright. Years prior, he was actually a chaplain at a different college in the university. And he would talk about conversations he'd have with students who weren't Christians, skeptics he'd call them. And he'd sit down with them over a cup of tea, which Ted Lasso would call warm brown water. And they would divulge to him all the reasons why they wouldn't believe in God. Oh, God's mean and capricious, to quote Stephen Fry, right? Or he's sadomasochistic, to quote Richard Dawkins. Or I've just not seen him in my life. God seems distant and absent and like he doesn't care. And they'd always finish with this sentence. I couldn't believe in a God like that. And N.T. Wright wisely and profoundly would just say to them, me neither. Whatever your story is this afternoon and whatever you think about God, let John testify to what he knows and let God through the text of John's first letter speak to our hearts, God is love. This is the central pillar of the Christian worldview. It's, it says that God at the center of his being, exactly who he is, is Love. Now, we'll unpack a bit of some of the nuance of that later, but don't let this miss us, right? God is love. 
This makes a claim that goes against every other worldview. So you ask the philosophers, right? The philosophers will say that God is the most maximally great being. Really helpful language to describe a God that's big and transcendent. And that's helpful, but man, that makes God seem distant, doesn't it? You ask the philosophers, that's what they'll say. You ask the Easterns from Eastern pantheistic faiths, and they'll say, God is everything. He's everywhere. He's this sort of special force that we can tap into as we look inside ourselves or spend time in creation, and that sort of makes God seem near but not transcendent. And here you have the God who in the Old Testament said, I'm the great I am, that I will be who I will be. I'm transcendent and wonderful and large and big, big enough to worship. And then John says, but he's also... Love. What did you walk in here this afternoon thinking about God? Maybe your experience in this life is one in which you think, nah, God's distant, he's absent. Or maybe your experience is that he's near, but he's impotent, he won't help you. But actually, if God is God, but he's revealed himself as love, here's what that means. He's nearer than you could think and more powerful than you can imagine. And he wants to be part of your life. God is love. John, uh, most people think, and I think too, wrote the gospel, the fourth biography of the life of Jesus. And when you realize that fact and you agree to that fact, you, you see something here, that when John writes his first letter, he's actually taking the life of Jesus that he gives witness to in the gospel and he's summarizing it with two ideas. Like if I was to ask you, hey, give me a tweet about what God is like, what would you say, right? What would you say? And you were one of the disciples. You walked with Jesus, you ate with Jesus, you listened to Jesus' teaching, you saw Jesus' miracles, you saw the way he spent time and allowed himself to be interrupted by the last and the least and the lost, what would you say? John says, God is love. Such a profound little statement. Now what does that mean for us? I want to apply this in two ways before I move on to the next point. I want to zoom out, so I want to zoom in on the idea that God is love, and then I want to zoom out to think about our next point together. So just imagine you zoom in on the idea that God is love. What would that mean? Well, let's just compare it with human love for a second. On a good day, I might be described as loving, right? On a good day. But even on my best day, I could never be love. Like, think about it. When humans describe one another, we use adjectives. So you might say, I don't know, I don't want to pick on anyone, but... Um, so I won't, I'll, <laughs> it just always goes south, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, we're not there yet. Um, but on a good day, you know, Kath might say, Alex, you're kind. Alex, you're loving. And she uses these adjectives, Alex, you're good, you know? And I'm really just spending this time to congratulate myself in front of New Life Brisbane. But these are adjectives, they're describing words. But when John writes about God, he uses a noun. Just think about how profound that is for a second. God is something. What does that mean? Well, if I'm loving, it actually means that like, my love is a reaction to something, that it's got a cause outside of myself. But if God is love, there's no cause outside of God that changes his love. It's just who he is. You can't cause God's love in this life. Or think about it like this. My love, it's conditional. Sometimes it's conditional on my own character and whether I've got the energy to be a decent human. Other times it's conditional upon the things outside of myself that I've got no control on. But it's conditional. There's a number of factors that can change my love. Not just the fact of my love, but the caliber of my love. 
And you would know this. Sometimes it's just indigestion. You know, you feel sick and you're like, I don't feel very loving today. That's human love. Because we are loving, our love is conditional. It's caused. What about God? No way. Not the God of the Bible. Not if it's true that God in his very being is love. You zoom in on that fact. What does it mean? It's unconditional. It's who he is. You can't change it. If you walked in here this afternoon with a sense of shame and dread that maybe God's not loving because you didn't have the week that you wanted to, just let that brush off you. That's not the God that we worship. We worship the God who is love. If you think, man, I just gotta clean myself up, get myself fixed, check myself before I wreck myself, before I meet the God of the Bible, just not true. That's just not part of the story. God is love. Nothing you do can change the love of God. Nothing you are can change the love of God. God is love. Nothing's gonna change about that. Do you know that this afternoon? Like that'll change the way you wake up and go to sleep every single day. You wake up thinking, as the psalmist said, God's mercies are new every day. You put your head on the pillow knowing that you can rest because God works. You, you, sort of, you go out and try and be an evangelist or a Christian who speaks about Jesus as awkward as you are and you think, man, I'm so alone. Not true. God is always moving towards the world in love. It's who he is. It's what he does. God is love. Do you know that this afternoon? Not human love. Divine love. God is love. But let's zoom out for a second. You know, there's four times in the New Testament that a writer sort of equates something with who God is, four times. John does it twice. He says God is light and God is love. The writer to the Hebrews does it, says God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. And then earlier in John's gospel, chapter four, I think it is, John also says God is spirit. Four times are there sort of God is, God is, God is, God is, light, love, consuming fire and spirit. And this sort of gives us a broader brushstroke with which to understand who God is. Because a lot of people, and this is me moving on to my second point, what God has done in history, a lot of people will take the idea that God is love and they'll use it to justify a whole myriad of things in life. Whether it's a certain kind of relationship, whether it's a certain kind of sin, whether it's a certain sort of habit in darkness, whatever it is, they'll use the idea that God is light and say, well, sorry, God is love. And they'll say, because God is love, anything goes. Nothing matters. Morality, relative. Sin, non-existent. Darkness, just whatever. But you, the idea that God is love is not on its own in the scriptures. It's in tension, not in competition, but married together with these beautiful ideas. And they sort of get beautifully portrayed in this next point, historic action, what God has done in history to reveal his love. So let me read verses nine to 10. It says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. One of the things um, that you'll notice if you sort of zoom in on the way that the Bible talks about God's love is often the New Testament writers talk about it in the past tense. So you think of the famous passage, John 3.16. It says, God so loved the world. Or you think of Romans 5, and it says, while we were still sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There's this past tense nature about it. And you might read that and think, goodness me, does that mean God only loved me in the past? Not at all, because God is love. It's eternally present. But what what are the writers of the New Testament trying to pick up on? they're actually trying to pick up on the fact that God's done something in history to show this, if we ever 
out of doubt as to whether God loved us. It just can't be true because something's happened in history to point to. And what we call that is the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. That as Paul writes in Romans 5, this is how God shows his love, shows off his love, demonstrates his love, takes the idea of loves and gives it practical action. If you were doubting as to whether God loves you, Paul would say, John would say, the New Testament would say, the, scripture, the Christian story would say, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what does the cross of Jesus Christ have to do with God's love? In 2020, um, Kath and I were living in Sydney and... Um, we got news one afternoon that there'd been um, a horrible accident that had happened out in Western Sydney. This is around February 2020. Three kids were walking to get ice cream and um, their parents, the Abdallah family, um, sent them out to get ice cream just a casual afternoon, getting some food together as little kids. And as they were walking along, a drunk driver came and crashed into the kids and the kids lost their lives and the Abdallah parents lost their kids. Now just pause for a moment. Um, horrific, like horrible accident and like such a waste, you know? A sense of life. Why did that have to happen? And it happened at the hands of a drunk driver. Now there's a justice muscle in me that should this ever happen to us when we have kids, God willing, like what would my response be? My little ones, my kids, my pride, joy, jewels, blessings from God and because of someone's recklessness and lack of care and lack of foresight, something which is so avoidable. Go on. But the Abdallah family, they, they have a relationship with God and they were quoted by a myriad of news outlets when they were caught allowing this guy to receive his sentence and going through some of the machinations of law, they had this wonderful thing to say. They said, we refuse to hate this man and we forgive him. We refuse to hate this man and we forgive him. My justice streak says, man, that, that was so avoidable, such darkness and horror Surely there's got to be a sentence on this man. But my love streak says, man, that, what resource do you have with which to say that? The Abdallah family knew what the cross of Jesus Christ meant. Because here's the Christian story. The Christian story says that all of us were made for good but damaged by evil. Now we find ourselves wrapped up in sin, offending not just our brothers and sisters but the God who made us all. Which means the person to whom we're ultimately accountable is not just one another on a social level, but God on a transcendent level. There's something which we've all done wrong. And we find ourselves in that predicament amidst the justice of that claim that we're not who we're meant to be, but the love of God who wants to redeem us. The question is, what does God do? And this is why the New Testament writers point to the cross of Jesus. Because the claim of the cross of Jesus is that God married together perfect love and perfect justice all at the same time. That on the cross of Christ, Jesus died the death we deserved and he lived the life that we could never live. All in a bid with which to reconcile us to himself. That's the claim of the cross. That on the cross, God is light who exposes sin. Married together, God is love who loves us despite our sin. He judged sin in the body of Jesus and reconciled sinners because of his love. All at the same time. This is the marvel of the hinge point of the Christian story. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's why the New Testament writers say this is how God shows his love. This is what God does. 
It's where he marries together mercy and justice. John Stott put it like this. It'll be on the screen. When we look at the cross, we see the justice, love, wisdom, and power of God. It's not easy to decide which is the most luminously revealed, whether the justice of God in judging sin or the love of God in bearing the judgment in our place or the wisdom of God in perfectly combining the two or the power of God in saving those who believe. Now, here's what I want to say to us this afternoon before we move on to my last point. When you get this, this will change your life. Like when you get this, this will change everything. Because you realize that being a Christian doesn't mean being someone who tries to be perfect before they experience God's love. Being a Christian doesn't mean being someone who's sinless. Being a Christian doesn't mean trying to sort of pull yourself up by your moral boots, you know, and fix yourself up before you, you know. You can't curate yourself with the Christian God. You can't make yourself clean. You just can't. But if you ever thought that was an excuse for God to not love you, this shows you otherwise. A hymn writer put it like this, nothing in my hand I bring, simply come, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. It's this sense that man, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have a stake in the claim of being amazing moral people, none of us. But God so loved This is how God shows his love. And so what I want to say to us this afternoon is this. We work from love, not for love. Like as a Christian, you know, just think about your life. Think about your devotion to God. Think about your, just the quiet time you try and have with God every now and again or whether you've got a regular rhythm to it. You're not earning anything. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means that you've got freedom to do it and enjoy the love of God that you experience that punctuates the midst of it. We're working from love, not for love. We're working from acceptance, not for acceptance. That in other words, you don't come to Christianity after you've fixed yourself. You come to the cross of Jesus Christ as you are. Nothing should hold you back. But when you come, get ready for the adventure of a lifetime. Because we're talking about tests for authentic Christian faith here. There's a vision that we're being called to. It involves intellectual, moral, and social change. It'll upend your life, but start you afresh with the love of God. This is what God has done in history. Last point, present goal. And just as I jump into this, I'd invite some of the band to join me here. Let me read verses 11 to 12. It says this. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now here's one of the great reliefs of the Christian life, according to some of this text. We don't have to like each other as Christians. I thought there'd be a bit more of a laugh to that, but that's okay. (laughs) Everyone just likes each other here. Now think about it, right? Like this is a room, we're a bit of a ragtag bunch, right? You know, you've got... Um, young and not so young. You've got people with different cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, people with different education levels. Some have gone to university, some have not, some never want to. You've got a myriad of different people here and there's this sense in which, why are we here, right? 
Like, turn to the person, I'm just kidding, right? <laughs> we won't do that. But you don't have to like each other. But you do have to love each other. Just think about that for a moment. We do have to love each other. Have you ever found it strange that one of the greatest commands in the New Testament is to love one another? Jesus said it. The apostles said it. John has said it right here. It's one of the most repeated commands in the New Testament. And you think, man, like if you watch Married at First Sight, for example, and you think, what is, like, how, do the, how does our culture portray love? You watch Married at First Sight, and love in our culture is more of a feeling. I remember um, actually watching Maths, uh, I think it was, I don't know what season it was, but it's been in the last eight months, I confess, and I was watching Maths with Kath, and there was this interaction between this now husband and wife, and I'm revealing way too much, aren't I? This husband and wife, Elder Kathy says yes, um, this husband and wife, and, and you know, the premise of Married at First Sight is um, there's a guy down the front of the altar, a woman walks through, they get married on the day, but they'd not met each other prior. First look, first time, first conversation, everything. So you're standing before each other, you give one another vows, and you know, surely they're thinking, is this going to work? No, it's not. Statistics. But they get married, and then the show sort of plays out their journey. And everyone's hoping, you know, I hope this couple stays together, I hope that couple stays together. Terrible definition of love. But one couple was having this conversation one time, and, and they talk about the love they're experiencing, and whether because they're experiencing the right kind of love, that they'll continue in their relationship. And she says to him, she says, I want that, because this is what she didn't have in their, their marriage at that point. She's like, I want that sort of fire in my belly, butterflies out of my mouth kind of love. I remember hearing this and writing it down, being like, that is ridiculous. <laughs> and then putting my romantic cap on and being like, that's right. No, <laughs> that is absolutely ridiculous. Fire in my belly, butterflies out of my mouth kind of love. I'm like, tell me when you find that, that sounds awesome. But our culture would say love's a feeling. Love is a feeling. If you have it, do something about it. But if not, right? No worries. The New Testament makes love a command. Why would it make love a command? Why on my wedding day would I stand before my bride and say, I promise to love you? what's the alternative? I promise to feel love for you? Goodness me, that won't work. Especially if she's saying it to me. You can't make a promise about feelings. You can't respond to a command about feelings. Feelings are accidental. They're circumstantial. They're reactive. They're conditional. But you can make a promise to love. And here's the beautiful thing. C.S. Lewis helps us out here. He writes this. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets that when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. The central duty of the Christian life is to love one another. That's obedience. That's obedience in the same direction for a long time for the sake of the world. God was very wise when he didn't command us to have feelings of like and love for one another as a church. He commanded us to love. Now let me just unpack one more profound idea before I finish up our time together. Here's John's 
argument. If John also wrote the Gospel of John, then we know that there's two times when John talks about God as unseen, right here and in John chapter 1, verse 18. Let me read it to you. It says this. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. It's this beautiful idea. No one's seen God, but if you've looked at Jesus, you've seen God. The person who reveals God is Jesus. Jesus is like God's selfie in the world. It's a picture of who God is, the image of the invisible God, Paul would say in Colossians. The only other time that John uses the language that no one has ever seen God is right here. He says, no one has ever seen God. Let me just read it for us. Just think about this. No one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he had, it wasn't like he was saying, I'm not going to show God to the world anymore. It, it just meant that he changed his body. And here's John's argument from his gospel to his letter. How God revealed himself in Jesus is how he wants to continue to reveal himself in the way we love one another. Like if you want to know whether you act to mundanely love someone at church means anything, just think about that. The way you come to church on a Sunday, the way you welcome someone who's new, the way you extend a handshake and a welcome, the way you call up someone during the week and check in to see if they're going okay, the way you share bread and food and drink at small group, the way you go out of your way just to show someone love, maybe make them a meal or do something. If you want to know if it makes any difference, one, yes, but two, what does it witness to? This is God's love. Like it witnesses to that. It actually makes it tangible that the New Testament writers have this picture in their mind that as we love one another, people should walk into our midst and be like, man, there's something divine happening here, right? And my question to us, church, is this. Can we participate in that kind of love? Don't have to like each other. But man, we've got to love each other. There's too much at stake. And so before I invite us to respond, just really briefly, why don't you just close your eyes? All throughout this letter, we've been hearing John address his reader. And he says, dear friends, dear friends. And I looked up the original language this week and actually the language is, is more like dear beloved from the word agape. And I just felt God was saying to me this week, that's no mistake. And the reason I think John does this is because he wants to remind his readers that all this call and command and vision to love means nothing unless you realize that you are the beloved. Like no way will you have the resource to outwork this beautiful vision of life unless you realize that you are the object of someone else's affection. 
Three times in this passage, John says, dear beloved, dear beloved, dear beloved. And I just wanna say to us, New Life Church, dear beloved this afternoon, do you know that God loves you? If you were at a dinner table with Jesus, what would his body posture be towards you? Where do you picture him? So I just wanna say to us this afternoon, we can't give away what we haven't received. And I just wanna pray for us as we lean into worship, that we'd receive the love of God afresh. That might feel like something physical on this Pentecost Sunday. It might just seem like an image that gets conjured up in your head and you realize that God loves you. It might be a thought, whatever it is, My prayer would be that we would be filled this afternoon with the love of God. And so to do that, would you just stand with me? God invites us to participate in this moment and I would do that too. So just in a bid to surrender to God, let's invite you, just open your hands if you feel so led, feel so willing. And on this Pentecost Sunday, a date that we use to remember what God did, but feel afresh the invitation from the Spirit of God right here and now. Just open your hands and surrender to God. And if you want to just echo this prayer in my heart as we step into worship. God, thank you that you are love. Thank you that you showed us love. While we were far off, broken, and away you reached out to us. Lord, we receive your love again afresh today. And we pray that ancient prayer, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit.